The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. When we come into a space again and again and again and engage in creative activity, our brain is going to be conditioned to enter into a creative mental state just by stepping into that space to begin with. So that's something you want. But I love the little story about how Charles Dickens of, you know, Charles Dickens, 19th century English Brit lit fame (laughs) would go on book tour. And when he would go to check into his hotel, he would actually rearrange the furniture to mimic how the furniture was arranged in his studio, in his, in his study back home. And he would also take little tchotchkes with him from home and set them up on his desk so that that kind of mental connection would be made between home, creativity, writing, and in this case, his remote location. <laughs> Greetings, scribes. Welcome back to The Writer Files. I'm your humble host, Kelton Reed, and this week, the author, educator, and award-winning architect Donald M. Ratner stopped by to expound on invaluable research into the latest psychology and productivity studies to offer practical tips for designing your writing space for maximum creative output. Donald has an art history degree from Columbia, a graduate with honors, and a master's of architecture from Princeton. He's now the founder of an award-winning architecture firm and a creativity architect whose work on the psychology of creative spaces has been featured on CNN and the New York Times, Work Design Magazine, Better Humans, Town & Country, and many others. His latest book, My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation, offers 48 techniques to boost your creativity at home, according to science. The book has a coffee table slash textbook feel to it, and includes over 200 high-quality photos of interiors from around the world from top-tier architects, designers, and creatives. So guess what we'll dig into today. Also, a quick note, I'm changing up the format of the show based on some feedback to publish longer episodes presented in a single part as opposed to two-parters split for a shorter drive-time experience. Reach out on Twitter or over at thewriterfiles.fm if you like the longer episode format better. And I greatly appreciate your feedback as always. In this file, Donald and I discussed the often disparate and misleading definitions of creativity. Why writers have such a unique relationship to their creative space, science-based techniques to boost your creative output, secrets behind why creativity is a 24-hour occupation, 
the optimal noise and clutter levels for idea generation. Why nature plays such a critical role in creativity and productivity, and so much more. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. And leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. You can always reach out to me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Also, The Writer Files is now available on Alexa because Apple Podcasts are available on Alexa-enabled Amazon devices in the United States. Now all you have to do is say, Alexa, play The Writer Files on Apple Podcasts and she'll probably grant your wish. Stay tuned. Okay, we are back on the Writer Files, and I am excited today to be joined by a uh, an honored guest, architect Donald M. Ratner is joining us to dig into all things creativity and talk about uh, a fantastic book. But yeah, Donald, thanks so much for hopping on here today. Do you go by Donald, Don? Or DM, or what, what do you prefer? Uh, people call me all sorts of things, um, some nice, some less so, but um, just because it's one syllable, feel free to use Don. <laughs> Fantastic. So I'll admit uh, something that, that I probably don't ever talk about on the show, but um, I was an aspiring architect long ago, um, right out of high school. I ended up in architecture school and and felt completely out of my depth as a creative, but, uh, kind of got immersed in, in those, uh, you know, those early, early, um, lower division architecture classes. And, and it was a lot of fun for me, but I'm really excited to chat with you about, yeah, your background a little bit. And, uh, let's talk about, first of all, your business card, which says creativity architect. I love that title. I want to talk a little bit about how you became a creativity architect. Sure. So um, great to hear of your your early interest in the field, and it's it's a, it's very good though that you know you kind of discovered maybe this isn't the path for me early on, <laughs> um, because you know it's it's kind of a long haul for architects. There's kind of a phase of apprenticeship that you're going through many years, you know, and then people yeah. just aren't ready to kind of entrust you with a million dollars of their money or whatever it's going to be when you're, you know, fresh out of school. So, um, you know, good for you for having the interest and hopefully, you know, you still do um, as a civilian. Um, but <laughs> in terms of my uh, my evolution of creativity architect, um, you know, I began practice uh, in the usual way, which is starting at the bottom, you know, joining a firm, getting a job, doing the the low-level work, and just over the years, of course, building up my knowledge um, and my um, position within the field. And then at one point, you know, I'd been actually practicing for quite a while, had my own firm or was running my own firm, and I got a job to do a modular construction project. So for folks listening who might not be familiar with that, modular construction is where they build basically boxes, call it that, 10 feet by 20 feet, roughly speaking, in a factory and then truck them to the site and drop them down on the foundations with cranes, kind of bolt them together, finish them off on the outside, and voila, you have a building, as opposed to what's called stick building, where you're literally, you know, you're bringing piece by piece and assembling it uh, one part at a time on the site. And that 
experience kind of like changed my my thinking in a lot of ways because it got me wondering well what you know let's dig down a little bit here what is the nature of creativity certainly as it applies to the building arts and you know this was a whole new way of approaching things almost like uh, think of legos where you have a kind of set of predetermined elements that you combine and recombine to form the whole versus oh i've got a blank piece of paper and i'm going to draw something and they'll bring the pieces one by one and put it together and as i kind of began digging into this question, I kept stumbling on, uh, you know, articles here, posts there, uh, scientific papers here and there, all connecting elements of our environment, of the built environment in particular, to how we think creatively. And as a result, I've kind of turned all my attention to this particular subject area with the goal of bringing together what is a lot of information, much of it hiding in kind of plain sight, you know, tucked away in scientific journals that maybe only scientists read or a few pieces that get through it into the popular press, but they kind of come and then they go and aggregating it, bringing it together, drawing connections between things and translating it in a way that people, whether they are design professionals or not, can use it in their own lives. And in that, I've kind of I guess, recharacterize myself as not specifically just an architect in the kind of conventional sense, but one that explores specifically the connection between the built world and creative thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really impressive to hear about. And, and you know, it's not something probably that um, writers think about, you know, too often, maybe. Um, you know, and I think as we talk about this fantastic book that you wrote that came out recently, My Creative Space, uh, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation. I think we want to, we really want to kind of approach your, or, you know, dig into your take on specifically, I mean, creatives in general, but, you know, obviously writers and, and the writing writing space. So, I mean, I love how you open the book by really digging into kind of a definition of creativity, right? You got to kind of start from, from square one with, with something so immersive as this book, right? Absolutely. want to kind of lay the groundwork for what I'm going to talk about elsewhere, because, you know, there's a lot of disparate ideas floating out there as to what constitutes creativity. It has a certain mysterious aura to it. I think, in a lot of people's minds. And um, as I say, there's a lot of misperceptions. So when you ask someone on the street, so to speak, you know, are you creative? The first thing many people will say is, oh, no, I can't draw. As if, you know, right. creativity only takes the form of drawing. Or the other answer you get a lot is, well, I'm no Einstein or Picasso. And, of course, comparing yourself to some, you know, historically eminent genius is, is you know, obviously not the way to think of creativity either. Creativity happens uh, across a spectrum from the most minor personal dimension of, oh, I came up with a creative solution on how to fix the leak under my sink using bubble gum and, you know, picture wire to theory of relativity, but a lot in between. So I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork for, for a common understanding of what creativity is. And I would also say, though, as it applies to writing, when I'm talking about creativity, it's not necessarily just, say, fiction writing or screenplay writing, uh, what we think of as creative writing, it can apply, of course, to nonfiction writing as well. Just the, uh, the act of combining words, there's almost a modular system right there, right? We have a set of predetermined units called words, and we combine them in ways to form sentences and sentences to paragraphs and so on and so forth. 
that is all creativity. In fact, creativity today has gone way beyond just the arts. That that working definition certainly applied for a couple of hundred years, say, from about the Renaissance through the middle of the 19th, 20th century. But today, creativity can apply to anything from, you know, writing to marketing, to finance, to education, all sorts of fields, the sciences. So we have a much broader sense of what creativity is than we perhaps used to. Yeah, yeah. Well, this book, um, I feel is, you know, are we calling it a, it's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's equal parts, like, luxuriating coffee table book, but also a textbook on, on creativity. And, you know, you kind of talk about this, you know, I want to say the intersection, right. Of both mind, body and space. And as you're digging into kind of the psychology and the productivity research, you're also talking about Gosh, there's so much going on here, but it's it's fascinating. I mean, like for a book on creativity alone, it's it's it got some really fascinating research and 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 um, takeaways. So I don't know. I mean, you, you've obviously been studying creativity for quite some time. How what inspired you to put all of this together into one place and come up with these forty eight uh, science based techniques, which are just all gosh, so awesome. I mean, so fun to kind of dig into. You can, I, I feel like you can go linearly or you can kind of skip around. Like you don't necessarily have to read it cover to cover, you know, page by page. Right. Um, yeah. And I talk about that in the introduction. So I tried to set it up so that, yes, you could use it as a manual, you know, a, a primer, a how-to. There's lots of uh, practical applications, having kind of laid out these connections, uh, establishing the kind of psychology behind them, the science behind them, the theory behind them, and then say, okay, now how do we want to apply this to the real world? I guess that's sort of the architect in me uh, wanting to translate this information, this this speculative or theoretical or psychological dimension of, of our behavior, explanation for our behavior into, okay, how can I improve my creative output by applying these techniques, leveraging this information in my own physical space. And for that, we need to know the how-tos. But on the other hand, you know, if you want to read it straight through, I tried to make the narrative as continuous as possible. It was very challenging at times because so many of these techniques, tactics, as I call them in the book, uh, are interconnected on multiple levels that, you know, it was a challenge not to kind of have to repeat myself each and every time, uh, but at the same time explain whatever it is I'm talking about in any given moment. So I tried to do that with a lot of cross-referencing between, you know, here's tactic number 32. You can look at that one, this one, and this one. Yeah. Uh, in any case, um, what drove me uh, originally to do all this is the idea that, you know, this this material is just kind of out there and it's scattered and it isn't anywhere that people can kind of find it, pull it together, make the connections between these bits of information and have a resource to create their own space uh, or to utilize it to create or modify their own working space. And I, I certainly had writers obviously being one myself, um, deep in mind, or really at the center of the kind of audience that I was writing for, because I think writers do have a unique relationship to their physical environment. For one mm -hmm. thing, uh, you know, we tend to tend to work in the same place uh, again and again. Yes, we might have some kind of sur surrogate or secondary spaces. We go to the coffee shop or the park bench or whatever. 
but we tend to be in one place for much of our time. Um, we tend to be solitary in what we do, so there isn't a lot of interaction with other people when we're literally doing the writing itself, mm-hmm. which makes that kind of person to, to, to place a connection very intense. And it's also unmanual labor for the most part, very cerebral labor in the sense that the typing part is pretty you know, modest in scope. It's the thinking that's kind of the heavy lifting. So for all of these reasons, I think our relationship to our physical space is very important. And as you say, maybe isn't getting as much attention as it should and maybe is kind of like a, uh, an unused resource or underutilized research, uh, resource that I think writers could um, take it upon themselves to actually help them rather than in some cases actually hinder them or at best be neutral. Well, as the author of three books now, do you feel like this was kind of a culmination of, of, you know, a lot of your, uh, your life work and life studies. I mean, what was this the one that took, was this the book that took the longest for you to get to publish? Yes, I would say that is the case. I mean, I, I combine, I include the research part as well as the writing and it's obviously, yes, it was an enormous amount of research because once you go down this rabbit hole, you could just go on and on and on forever. Yeah. And there's a lot of material there. And it comes from different disciplines. You know, there's psychology, there's evolutionary psychology, there's environmental psychology, there's biology, neuroscience, all of these things, on top of which is the, quote, architecture, design, uh, putting together physical space aspect, the practicalities, as well as the theory. It's, yeah, it's one of these kind of, you know, subjects that are just so multivalent uh, in their way that you really have to get your arms around a lot of material. So it took quite a bit of time to research. And then the writing, yes, because of the challenges, as I described them, of trying to keep this into a coherent narrative without repeating myself again and again. Um, it, it, it was, you know, there were times when I was banging my head against the walls, I'm sure everyone has experienced at some point mm-hmm. uh, in their travise. But in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, there's a huge breath of or exhalation of relief when it was done because i do feel like it is a kind of consummate work for me bringing together so many different aspects of my background in one place earlier in the show i mentioned an invaluable resource for writers truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a diy manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing failing and trying again author steve almond is a beloved professor at harvard and wesleyan and the acclaimed new york times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders, 
And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, I do want to say that it is a beautiful book and it's uh, absolutely has these amazing, uh, you know, as I'm saying, I'm kind of, it's a book I want to kind of luxuriate in, has these uh, beautiful high quality photos of interiors from around the world of, you know, not only top tier architects and designers and creators, but uh, some writers as well, as you mentioned. And it's just, it's just such a great, a great uh, resource, I think. But yeah, let's dig into the material a little bit. And um, <laughs> talk about some, maybe some of the more fascinating or to you more, um, I don't know, just surprising pieces of the research that you found. I mean, cause there's so much here to unpack, but let's talk about some of the things maybe that you're more excited to share with writers. Um, the, you know, I mean, I love the idea of really unlocking the power of your home to boost your creativity. And as you mentioned, you know, a lot of writers do work from home or work from a home office and spend a great deal amount of time doing that, doing the mental work. And, you know, as you put it, it's, it's not always easy. It's, it's, it can be at times tedious and boring, right? Sitting, sitting and and having to, to, uh, generate words that, that, uh, are going to inspire an audience. But, um, yeah, having some, uh, as you put it, a subliminal stimulant to, you know, help to uh, open up those creative avenues. Talk a little bit about some of the more, I don't know, like weird or out there things that you discovered in the writing of the book. Maybe that you were like, wow, I didn't, I didn't even know this. Um, Cause obviously you, you've, you know about lighting and you know about, um, you know, how, I don't know, even vistas or, or views can kind of enhance creativity, but talk about some of the, some of the weirder pieces of, uh, the creative process that you discovered about, you know, the marriage of mind, body, and space. Right. So, yeah, just to make a general point here, a lot of this um, is based on the idea of priming, which is the notion that certain inputs, sensory stimuli that enter into our consciousness from the environment through one of the five senses, right, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, in some way trigger an output that takes the form of a change of behavior, change of condition. So the inputs that we're interested in here in this book are are, uh, emanate from our surroundings, our physical space, and whether those are things that we see or things that we touch or things that we smell, or in some case, things that we do in that environment, those are the inputs and the output that we're always looking for. Okay, what are those inputs that lead to improved creative test performance? So um, there were quite a few discoveries for me in going through this material. As you say, many things are happening subliminally. We're unaware of them. We, we can barely understand why they do what they do, but they are there. And all of these are science-backed. So these are things that researchers, psychologists, uh, scientists have actually 
examined either in a laboratory condition or by going out into the field, into the real world and measuring creative output based on certain inputs, et cetera, et cetera. So just to kind of pick some some interesting ones and, and certainly thinking of some ones that might be particularly relevant to writers or where writers themselves have re have adopted these practices. One that's kind of very fundamental I've already touched on, which is the idea that you want to kind of designate a creative space somewhere in the world. It uh, can be your home and more specifically, you know, that desk in your living room or that desk in your home office or that easel in a studio, whatever it is, some place that you come back to again and again and again, because what's going to happen there is you're going to create what's called classical conditioning, right? We all remember the story about Pavlov and his dogs, how he would ring a bell every time he fed his dogs to the point where all he had to do was ring the bell and the dogs would start salivating even though there was no food in front of them. So <laughs> the same thing happens with our creative mindset. When we come into a space again and again and again and engage in creative activity, our brain is going to be conditioned to enter into a creative mental state just by stepping into that space to begin with. So that's something you want. But I love the little story about how Charles Dickens of, you know, Charles Dickens, 19th century English Brit lit fame, <laughs> would go on book tour. And when he would go to check into his hotel, he would actually rearrange the furniture to mimic how the furniture was arranged in his studio, in his, in his study back home. And he would also take little tchotchkes with him from home and set them up on his desk so that that kind of mental connection would be made between home, creativity, writing, and in this case, his remote location. Hmm. Uh, another one that's kind of was unexpected to me was the whole idea of nostalgia feeding into our creative mindset. So what they found is that the perception of distance, uh, whether that is physical distance or in this case, temporal distance, time, the farther away we perceive things, the farther away we construe information, as they call it, the more abstract, big picture, broad brush, defocused our mental state becomes. So think of it as when you're up in an airplane and you're looking down over, say, mid-country USA, what do you see? You see, you know, big tracts of farmland, but it looks, it looks like an abstract painting to you, right? Because you're, you're too far away to discern detailed information about what's going on down below. Whereas if you parachute out that plane, land on the ground, well, you can see every, you know, nick and scratch in the tractor that's standing in front of you, and you can see exactly what's being grown and so forth. So the distance from which we perceive things literally can change our mental state. When we see things up close, very narrow, very focused, very detailed, we tend to enter into what's called an analytical mindset. We talk, call that left brain thinking. When we see things from far away, we tend to move into a creative or holistic or insightful mindset. They're all kind of the same thing, where we get that more abstract, open-ended sensibility that we associate with the kind of creative idea-generating phase. So all that being said, how do you induce that in a physical space? Well, one way is to literally put up memorabilia, uh, family photos, old things, souvenirs you've taken from or antiques you've gotten on travels and so forth. So by prompting your brain to think back in time, you can actually kind of up your creative game by getting your mind into the kind of state that's conducive to idea generation. Not something I would have expected. Um, but more architectural in a way is that idea of expanding your sense of physical space. You mentioned views. If you're lucky enough to have views from your workspace, you want to be able to exploit them by being able to look out the window. If you don't have views, 
You could um, use things like artwork to suggest deep space because our minds will respond to metaphorical representations of distance just as much as they will to the literal one, another kind of interesting discovery I made. Um, and, th and interestingly, they've even tested writers on this whole idea of nostalgic thinking of looking back in time where they gave people creative writing exercises to do. One group would do them after thinking about things that happened in their lives from far back in time. And then another group did them without being prompted or primed, as we call it, by thinking back in time. And guess what? The group that thought back in time actually produced more creative work than those who didn't. So again, using metrics, using creativity assessment tests through scientific method to kind of give some credibility to these techniques, which otherwise you might say this sounds like total woohoo. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, I love the idea of these creativity tactics that you've established. Um, as you put it, these kind of actionable techniques uh, to improve idea flow. And one of my favorite quotes from the book is, is um, that you say creativity is a 24-hour occupation, right? And an idea can kind of strike you almost anywhere, anytime. But really, we're trying to bottle some of that, uh, that lightning, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, even when we think we are like dead to the world, meaning like asleep in deep sleep, uh, our brains are actually cranking away. In fact, during REM sleep, that kind of deep sleep where your eyes are kind of darting about, that's one of your most creative, fertile periods of the entire day. Because what's happening is that you're kind of front of mind thinking, your conscious thinking, your executive functioning, all of this stuff that happens in what's called the prefrontal cortex of the brain, that's kind of receded into the background, right? You're not conscious. Yeah. And so when your kind of brain lets its guard down, well, all the fun stuff that's turning around in the back of your mind gets more kind of mental bandwidth in which to crash into each other, bubble to the surface, uh, consolidate, all of these things are going on in your brain while you're asleep, which is why, you know, of course, many people in the history of the world have woken up and said, you know, Eureka. And of course, one great story there is uh, Paul McCartney woke up and, and had the whole, uh, you know, uh, melody for yesterday in his head, jumped up and kind of wrote it all down before <laughs> it could evaporate. And there are yeah. a lot of great stories because the brain is working away and in a lot of ways doing creative work in the middle of the night or middle of the sleep um, when when conditions are fertile. Now, the key with a lot of these things, of course, is idea capture. So that's why everybody should be leaving a journal, notebook, whatever it is, pad by their bedside at night. If they wake up in the middle of the night or in the morning, um, you've got to get those ideas down before they evaporate. Because if you think that you're going to remember them when you get back to your desk or later in the day, I'm afraid not. Um, the human brain is just not set up to keep that information for too long. It has to kind of move it out to make new information able to come in. So get it down there, captured, and then you can develop it subsequently. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to me how many writers I meet that um, don't like carry a notebook with them all the time. I found pretty early on in my uh, career that always having like a little pocket notebook to capture those ideas when you least expect them, even when you're driving, like sometimes when you're driving, you know, you're on a long, boring drive and something will occur to you having it then, you know, and obviously now we have kind of more modern idea capture 
in our at our fingertips with the smartphone. But even then, even then, sometimes, and you might want to speak to this as well, when we're talking about kind of the neuroscience and the neurobiology piece, is that writing something down by hand often. I think it's been proven does something a little bit different to to how your brain processes the information. So if it is something that's important, um, your brain tends to categorize it as such when you handwrite something as opposed to maybe speech to text or typing something into it. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, there have been uh, several studies and, and quite recent where, yes, it seems to be that writing does have a kind of advantage over sound or typing or one of these other methods of, of capturing ideas that it does seem to sink in better and process better. You're right. Um, it, and there's another thing about that, which is just the exercise of the hand. And I, and I use that as the basis of some of the tactics I describe. You know, we tend to think of ideas as being purely intellectual, purely cerebral. That is, they start in the brain and then our body just kind of carries out whatever actions necessary to concretize those ideas. In fact, uh, it works in reverse just as much. That is the body and very specifically the hand happens to be as much a source of ideas as the brain. And they flow from hand to brain as much as the other way around. And there's a term that the writer, uh, Michael, how do you pronounce it on Dutch, I think, um, has coined, which is thinkering, right? So thinkering by tinkering, this kind of hybrid uh, ideation where you're using your hands, prototyping, making stuff um, as a way to bring out ideas and not just relying on the brain itself. I should also mention you mentioned that, that you mentioned driving. Um, that is when you there are a few surveys out there that I use uh, a reference in the book um, asking people, so where were you? What were you doing when you got a good idea? And driving actually have, tends to fall pretty high on the list. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense because what you what you want to think about is sort of consciousness as like a seesaw, right? So at w- one end of the seesaw, sort of conscious thinking, and the other end as unconscious thinking. Or let me let me put this another way: creativity as a kind of play between conscious and unconscious thinking, where a seesaw effect uh, takes place. So depending on what you're doing, you will draw more from one end of the seesaw. One end of the seesaw will go up, and the other down, depending. So for example, when you're driving, and let's just say you're not in, you know tight traffic or somewhere dangerous or doing hairpin curves, you're kind of relaxed. You're almost on automatic pilot. And so there again, what happens is our consciousness side of the seesaw kind of goes down, which lets the unconscious side go up, which makes all those ideas start bubbling to the surface. Whereas if you're like, you know, skiing down the side of a steep mountain, of course, you are totally focused on what you're doing. So those are times where you're not going to get a lot of great ideas because you're too busy trying to keep yourself from getting killed. You're totally focused (laughs) on what you're doing. Whereas, again, creativity is about defocus attention, mind-wandering, letting things kind of bounce around, trying out new ideas and so on and so forth. So it's this constant theme of interplay between conscious and unconscious, uh, analytical and insightful thinking that is this this recurring theme, I think, throughout the book that I found very uh, interesting in my discovery period. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I love that idea. I mean, I love the idea. I love the, um, just the kind of the science behind that convergent and divergent thinking uh, that that you reference. No, exactly. And divergent convergence, just another one of these kind of binaries um, that describe this back and forth play between two sort of cognitive styles, two modes of mental processing. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, and I've talked to best-selling authors who have this 
And I'll reference specifically uh, Tess Gerritsen. She's a uh, New York Times bestselling uh, thriller author. She just she had mentioned that she has a lot of her best ideas for novels while she's on a long road trip. As you as you cool. as you mentioned, you're doing some of that incubation piece, right? Your brain is working in the background on these bigger, maybe these bigger issues or problems or creative uh, ideas that you've got working. It just does the work for you. It's so cool. Right. I mean, the classic, of course, is taking a shower, right? This kind of great idea incubator we have in our home where we go in and, you know, what are we doing? We're doing something that's totally habitual, totally, totally automatic. We're lathering, rinse, repeat, lathering, rinse, repeat. We've done it a thousand times before. We don't have to think about it. And so there again, the seesaw, the conscious end of the seesaw goes down and up goes the unconscious thinking. Lots come bubbling to the surface. Uh, There are a lot of other factors actually involved with showering as well. There's the warmth. Uh, Body temperature seems to affect our cognitive state. There's even the noise. I talk about how noise levels can affect our creative output. And that is one of the more surprising findings I found. You know, because if you ask most people, so what's your ideal noise level when you're trying to do creative work? I think Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10 people say, oh, well, quiet, of course, isn't it? Well, here's where the research seems a little counterintuitive. What they found is that about 70 decibels is actually a sweet spot for idea generation, which is probably about what you hear when you go into your local coffee shop on a you know reasonably busy afternoon and people are chattering away, which you know makes a certain amount of sense now that why you see all the creative types hanging out in Starbucks and coffee shops banging away on their laptops. And I think the idea there is that background noise. And it has to be white noise. That's a key here is just enough to take that edge off your sort of focused attention to keep you from getting into a kind of an analytical self-conscious mindset so as to nudge you over into that kind of creative column that um, lends itself more to idea generation. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. And I have found that to be 100% true. Being in a coffee shop, unless you are like sitting on top of like somebody who's really loudly conversing right when you when you right. when the words become very distinctively like oh no i'm listening to this conversation now exactly and one tr- one funny trick and I, I do actually use uh white noise in the office obviously i have i have uh, a child so um having uh good headphones with white noise the white noise generator that i use here has um not only kind of a um, a white noise piece to it or I don't know if it's brown noise or white noise, I can't remember, but also has a, a, a coffee shop kind of a simulator. <laughs> so it has yes. that white noise of just the lull of a coffee shop. Right. But I love working in a coffee shop. But sometimes, again, if you're like too close to some, like a couple that's talking or on a first date, I still put on the headphones and use that in a coffee shop. And it works just yeah. as well because there's kind of like a, a double funny. amplification. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. But, um, okay, so let's talk about, since, since really what we're talking about here is kind of how to de- design your creative space, let's talk a little bit more about some of these tried and true tricks and methods. I mean, I do, I, do, I did love your piece um, that you did recently about how facing your space can improve your writing. So 
Maybe talk a little bit about that. And I thought I found the theory of prospect refuge fascinating, even though we, we might not want to get into that because that might suck up the rest of our, <laughs> our time here. But um, just about like facing the, the proper way in your office space. And then right. maybe you could get a little bit into kind of your own creative space and, and tricks that you've used. Um, obviously, you're probably utilizing quite a few of these. Yeah, uh, for, like yeah, yeah. So ta- let's, let's talk about... Uh, why facing the right way is important, and then also, yeah, some of the some of these methods that you're you're utilizing in your own office. Yeah. So with face your space, yeah, we touch on. We'll try not to get drawn totally down that rabbit hole. But um, and this was one of the revelations again for me in doing this book. How much of our mindset of how we think is actually a vestige of our uh, caveman days, let's call it that. That is to say, a lot of how we think and act and feel is actually the same as the early Homo sapiens thought and felt and, and behaved on the African savanna when they first emerged 200,000 years ago. The reason being that evolution moves so slowly, it hasn't caught up to the fact that today we spend 90% of our time indoors in built environments, whereas 99% of the time before that, we were, of course, completely existent in a natural environment. So you get these kind of behavioral anomalies, these vestiges of our caveman brain operating within a modern world. And one of those is entailed in what you call facial space. So the idea of facial space is just what it sounds like for optimal creative output. You want to be looking oriented into your space rather than say having your back to the space and the classic way people have their back to the space is by butting their desk up against a wall because invariably you're by almost by nature have your back exposed to the space in which you are situated two things are happening there that are perhaps negatively impactful on your on your creative output one is your sense of of your space in general is compressed right because you've got a wall 24 inches away from you and uh, what I uh, talk about uh, at length in the book is how the sense of our sense of space is directly proportional to our creative output. The bigger, the larger, the more expansive our sense of space, the more open-minded, open to new ideas, open to creative possibilities we tend to be. Whereas the more compressed our sense of space, such as being up against the wall 24 inches away, the more narrow-minded, narrowly focused, more analytical our mindset. So you see, again, this direct correlation between mindset and physical space. Uh, the other problem is that by exposing your back to a space, you are, in a sense, rendering yourself vulnerable to, at least theoretically, attack. So here's where we get into this evolutionary end of things. The idea was that human beings evolved, and one of the reasons we were able to survive in the jungle, in the savanna, was that we figured out to protect ourselves by never turning our backs to, um, or, or, or exposing our backs to danger that is unseen attack by wild animals or hostile tribes or whatever. And so we were conditioned to always find the vantage point that we could see what's going on in front of us, right? But at the same time, have some kind of protection in our blind spots, meaning behind us at our flanks and overhead. So when you have your wall behind you by turning your desk into the space, you've created what you called refuge, protection, security, or a sense of, and at the same time, you have prospect. You can look into the room. You can see anybody coming into the room. You feel safe, secure. When we feel safe, when we feel comfortable, when we feel relaxed in our position in space, we are more prone to be creative because we'll be willing to take risks. 
Whereas the minute we feel threatened, however subliminally, we shift into an analytical mode because that's the best way to keep ourselves from getting hurt. So it's all based on our kind of innate sense of self-preservation and survival. It's a fascinating vestige of that happening, even though the threat, of course, of your being attacked in your own home is minimal. It doesn't matter. Your brain is wired in a certain way as to affect your cognitive state. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> there's so... There's so much I could pick your brain about, Don, and uh, we could go on and on. I mean, I find fascinating the idea of whether or not clutter is good for your creativity. And and obviously, the um, you know, you talked a little bit about the, the rise of Marie Kondo and kind of her, uh, her whole philosophy. Um, did you have a, a thought on that? <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I, when I when I give talks and such um, to audiences, that's one of the most popular questions: is what's 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 the deal with mess? <laughs> what's the deal with messy environments versus neat? So this is one where um, I think people will be happy to hear. There's there's arguments for both sides. So on the uh, sort of Marie Kondo side. Um, a lot of bad things can happen when your environment becomes so out of control that you feel like it's overwhelmingly overwhelming you. And people can get depression, anxiety, literally the, the illnesses and so on and so forth. So clearly there's physical harm to, 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 to uh, ha might happen if you let your environment just get completely out of control. And that's not good, not only for your creativity, but your general you know, state of being as well. So there's plenty of neat nicks out there who have been creatively accomplished. However, there is also argument and there's some scientific evidence that actually messy environments are good for creativity. And in one study, what they did was put people around a table that was kind of messy and the stuff on top was all over the place. And they had them undertake creative problem solving exercises. Then they had a second group around the same table, but the table was nice and neat. Well, it turns out that the group who did their exercises on the messy environment were actually more um, inventive in their, in their problem solving. And the idea, there were a couple of ideas there. One uh, is that creativity is by its nature a messy process. It's not a neat and simple linear process, step one, step two, step three. If it were that easy, of course, you know, we, we, we'd all be turning out masterpieces, but it's not. And in a sense, therefore, a messy environment simulates what's going on in kind of your mind in the creative process. There's also a social norm attached, I think, to neatness such that, you know, when you invite somebody over, you tidy up your house, you make it neat and pretty. So when they come over, you know, they, they think of your uh, home in a positive way. So the fact that creativity is often unconventional or means taking an unconventional approach to things would suggest this kind of, you know, contrary approach to what the social expectations are. So there's arguments either way. And I think at the end of the day, obviously, and with all of these tactics, I should mention, a lot of it is based on your own individual needs and habits. Um, because look, these are these are this research is undertaken uh, with general populations in mind. Obviously, they 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 test things with fifty people or five hundred people to get a sense of what the average quote unquote individual is about or is likely to be. But we are people; we're complicated. We vary. There are night owls, there are morning larks, and there's everything in between. So at the end of the day, it's what works for you. But I would suggest when you look at some of these tactics that maybe you want to think about trying things differently from how you currently do them and see if they might actually not benefit your creative work because sometimes we're not aware of it ourselves. 
It's all very fascinating. And uh, thank you for for your expertise and, and for the work, which is, um, I think, a, an amazing resource uh, for writers and creatives of all, all disciplines. Um, I will mention the name of the book again is My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation. And it draws on the latest psychology and productivity research and offers a uh, really amazing and practical approach and guide to designing your 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 space your creative space to kind of uh, boost boost your overall output and and I don't know just uh, I, looking through all of the especially when I get it when I when I'm looking at the crea- creativity tactics in Group Three and these, all these actions I'm like oh God I love this I love I love. Uh, I don't know, you get into the science of napping even. Yeah, there's some so interesting cool. things going on there. It's a, it's a, it's a, it was a great learning experience for me. You know, writing a book is as much about learning new things for yourself as sharing with others that which you have learned. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you have this great infographic from Daily Rituals, a really cool book that shows, you know, the the kind of the, what is it? Mason Curry's great book has a lot of cool stuff. He met, he talks about the yeah right the daily work routines and of famous creatives and i know um maria popova who long ago did kind of a written version of this interview um talks a lot about that and and but this is just a deep dive and uh again it's a rich trove of psychological research practical techniques for shaping a creative space and um i think writers are really gonna we're going to benefit from this. Uh, I did want to just just uh, grab this great quote from Carolyn Gregoire. Is it Gregoire? How do you pronounce her name? Gregoire, uh, yeah. I believe yeah. so, yep. The uh, co-author of Wired to Create, another great book. Donald's book, beautiful book, My Creative Space, expertly shows how our environments can be engineered for inspiration and innovation. Your creative work will benefit greatly from this thoughtful manual. I concur, sir. Um, we're going to point before we before we wrap up with um, I got one last query for you, and then I will just uh, point quickly at your home base there, which is donaldratner.com, right? That's correct. And there's some great great resources there. You can find the book, obviously, and you are on Medium at Donald Ratner as well as on Twitter, at Donald Ratner. That's two T's for uh, the listening audience. But I'll put yes, all these very links. very important there. Yeah. Get those two T's in. <laughs> I'll, I'll drop all these links into the show notes. So, of course, you can you can find all of this great information, including, um, yeah, a link to the book. And, and anyway, um, just to before we wrap up with kind of your advice on how to keep going and how, how writers can kind of uh, persevere and avoid writer's block, what does your office look like? Uh, what do you have a good view? Do you have what? What have you done there? That's um, you know different. Well, let's see. I'm very fortunate in that I'm located in an area where there is beautiful and abundant natural scenery all around um, the home, and nature plays a huge role in the book um, for reasons we've already touched on, in the sense that our you know, we originated in a natural environment, and once we take ourselves out of that natural environment, all sorts of bad things can happen in terms of physical health and so forth, and not surprisingly, our creativity as well. So there's a whole movement 
called biophilic design, which is the idea that the more we can bring nature back into our built environment, whether that's literally by seeing it through openings and so forth, bringing plants in, using natural materials, smells, sounds, textures, all sorts of ways to mimic nature inside the built environment, the more healthy, happy, and creative we will tend to be. All three of those tend to operate on the same spectrum. Hmm. So I am very fortunate, as I say, in being able to look out from my space and see trees and animal life and water and organic um, uh, matter all over the place. And that's a great rejuvenating um, and restorative effect has an effect on me. But then I've mimicked it on the inside. We're bringing some of those colors in. So my cabin tree is painted a kind of deep green. Um, I use some browns to kind of mimic tree bark and so on and so forth. I've got textures that emulate natural materials. I've got a lot of natural light, which is another important thing to have in a biophilic uh, environment. So in that sense, as I say, I'm very fortunate to be able to really uh, uh, leverage that connection to nature in my own space. Mm, that's really cool. And uh, oh, one quick thought on that, because you know, not not all writers have necessarily access to natural light or you know abundant natural light. Do you have a recommendation for? I know you talk a little bit about exposed light bulbs, but any kind of uh, you know for writers that keep the, that don't have that natural light but have an office um, like myself with you know kind of these recessed lights. Um, a little bit of natural light, but not a ton. Have you any recommendations for like a, uh, a type of light bulb or? Yes. One thing you can look at is uh, color changing bulbs. So, you know, the old days of you get a bulb, it's the same intensity, color, etc. you know, uh, consistently are kind of over because thanks to LED technology, there are bulbs that will literally change color from cool ambers to blues and oranges and everything uh, possible on the spectrum. So what you ideally would like to do is to have your bulbs programmed to mimic the uh, circadian cycle, the rise and fall of the sun. So when the sun first, get, first gets up in the morning, it's a little bit amber, then it steadily turns bluer and bluer until a little bit afternoon, it starts kind of going back towards an amber color. And then at the end of the day turns, you know, that fiery red because you're your circadian rhythms in your body are very attuned to that. That's how we were kind of bioengineered to begin with. So the more you can emulate that in your electric lighting, the better. So they're very simple uh, programs and apps you can now get that it would all be preset to kind of mimic that cycle from warm to cool and back to warm again. And if you can set your space up with that, that's a step in the right direction. But again, you can use things like artwork. You can have even just a plant on your desk, which they found to boost uh, ideation by 15 to 40% in workplaces. Mm. Um, lots of ways to bring nature in, but that particular lighting technique is, is a pretty good one as well. I love that. That's great. Great stuff. Well, like I said, I could, I could pick your brain all day, but I am going to let you go. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, if you had one final thought for your, for your fellow uh, scribes, just on how to keep going, um, and we'll wrap up there, but we appreciate your time. Oh, the pleasure has been all mine. But just, yeah, as an overarching kind of lesson here is, of course, space is critically important, especially to writers. But also let's remember about something that we don't talk about too much, certainly in the workplace, which is beauty. Um, you want to make your environment as appealing to yourself as possible, because then not only will you be happier uh, for doing so, but you'll actually want to spend more time in it. So a lot of times I kind of see writing spaces that are very functionalist. You know, they do the job, it's a file cabinet, it's a desktop, it's this and that, 
And I'm not saying that you have to hire an architect or a designer and spend gazillions of dollars to achieve it, but to think about it, give it some care and attention so that it's a space that you really are drawn to and like to spend time and will actually repay whatever investment you make in it. That is fantastic. Well, again, thank you for your time, uh, Don. We appreciate it. And, and hopefully you'll come back and wrap with us again and, and share some more uh, of these fascinating, fascinating and absolutely, geez, just terribly useful, I think, for creative, these science-based techniques and, and the book. Again, My Creative Space uh, will be in the show notes. So have a wonderful rest of your day. You too, Kelton. Thank you very much. It was, a, it was a really great conversation. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating or a review to help other writers find us. You can always leave us a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. Bye.